the Scroll, where we unpack scripture using the rich tradition of the church. I'm your host, John Brayer, and in this episode, I'll be joined by two colleagues who discuss the Book of Numbers, the Ark of the Covenant, and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. What I'd like to share with you today is a conversation I had with two of my colleagues, Mark and Serge. The conversation was quite extensive. We ended up talking for about 60 minutes. And so to cut things down and and give you an abbreviated version, I've cut about 20 minutes, just under that, out to share with you in this episode. So if it seems like there's an abrupt end to the conversation, sorry about that, but I wanted to focus our time in at least on a few of the passages from Numbers while our conversation was quite wide-ranging and quite interesting. So I hope that you enjoyed today's episode. And without further ado, I'll turn it over for the conversation. All right, thanks for joining me today for another episode of The Lamb and the Scroll. Today I'm joined by two of my colleagues and friends, uh, Mark Sierra and Serge DF. Um, first of all, thank you guys both for joining me and for what I'm sure will be an interesting discussion. Um, we have picked a couple passages from the book of Numbers to chat about today. And I, I first want to start by just addressing the, uh, the, the, the entire book of Numbers, because I think a lot of people tend to just kind of discard this book as, oh, it's just full of a census and numbers and I don't really need that. But in all reality, I don't think that's necessarily a fair characterization of the book because it's more about the wandering that takes place uh, before the entry into the promised land. And, and yes, there are censuses that are taken, but it's more about this spiritual and literal wandering that the, uh, the Israelites find themselves um, over the course of close to 40 years. Um, so with that context in mind, I'll turn it over to, uh, to you to introduce the passages we're going to look at and then to start digging So two things that really concern me about the passages in Numbers that we're going to be examining are what is this Ark of the Covenant and how are we to understand the presence of the Lord, right? And what it would mean to be in the presence of the Lord. So I'll read from the first one and then I'll add some commentary from the concordance, the dictionary, uh, the concordance of the Bible that we have here in the BFLC library. I'll then read the second one and read from a definition of the Lord's presence in the Dictionary of Dogmatic Theology that we also have in the BFLC. So that's my plan. Um, First excerpt, chapter 4, and then we're looking at verses 4 through 20. The service of the Kohathites in the meeting tent concerns the most sacred objects. In breaking camp, Aaron and his sons shall go in and take down the screening curtain and cover the Ark of the Commandments with it. Over these, they shall put a cover of tahash skin, and on top of this spread an all-violet cloth. They shall then put the poles in place. On the table of the presence, they shall spread a violet cloth and put on it the plates and cups, as well as the bowls and pitchers for libations. The established bread offering shall remain on the table. Over these, they shall spread a scarlet cloth and cover all this with tahash skin. They shall then put the poles in place. They shall use a violet cloth to cover the lampstand with its lamps, trimming shears and trays, as well as the various containers of oil from which it is supplied. The lampstand will, with all its utensils, they shall then enclose in a covering to hash skin and place on a litter. Over the golden altar, they shall spread a violet cloth and cover this also with a covering of tahash skin. They shall then put the poles in place. Taking the utensils of the sanctuary service, they shall wrap them all in violet cloth and cover them with tahash skin. They shall then place them on a litter. After cleansing the altar of its ashes, they shall spread a purple cloth over it. 
on this they shall put all the utensils with which it is served, the fire pans, forks, shovels, basins, and all the utensils of the altar. They shall then spread a covering of tahash skin over this and put the poles in place. So I just want to note the care with which the altar is being taken down and put onto a litter. Now, these are the important lines in this first excerpt. Only after Aaron and his sons have finished covering the sacred objects and all their utensils on the breaking of camp, shall the Kohathites enter to carry them. But they shall not touch the sacred objects. If they do, they will die. These then are the objects in the meeting tent that the Kohathites shall carry. Eliezer, son of Aaron the priest, shall be in charge of the oil for the light, the fragrant incense, the established cereal offering, and the anointing oil. He shall be in charge of the whole dwelling with all the sacred objects and utensils that are in it. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, do not let the group of the Kohathite clans perish from the body of the Levites, that they may live and not die when they approach the most sacred objects. That is what you shall do for them. Aaron and his son shall go in and assign to each of them his task and what he must carry. But the Kohathites shall not go in to look upon the sacred objects, even for an instance. If they do, they will die. And that's the end of this first excerpt that I wanted to bring to our attention. Just before we came uh, to this interview with you, we were watching again Raiders of the Lost Ark. And we were watching, like, just, I mean, I wish you were there. You missed it. It's the scene, sir, where Indy is tied, right? And he can tell something's up. Belloc is at the altar. Mm -hmm. uh, they are, like, unleashing the power that Hitler wants. He's got, as you have in these movies, one Nazi to the left of him, a Nazi to the right of him. He's keeping company with the people that he wants to keep company with. And they, they reach in and they're just looking at the sand and there's almost this kind of derision. Is this it? Is this all the ark contains? Sand? And then there's a charge of, electric, like an electrical charge that overtakes the camera and the generator. And Indy turns and he's like, yeah, better close your eyes. Whatever you do, do not lay eyes on what's about to come and it is death and destruction i was watching this again with my daughter last night she's like what's happening to them why are they melting like that who is that what is this thing that's coming out and you know i told mark i'm afraid to say god because then lexi's going to be like well i don't want to see god if god's going to do that i mean like with the laser eyes and like blow things up and so part of it is that raiders of the lost ark is built upon our understanding a an understanding of what the ark is and what the ark does. And we were saying just before this that as we looked through the description in the concordance, Mark, I, I wanna hand it over to you because you were the one to note this in the concordance about where the ark is and God is leading people where as a result. First thing, before we even jump into that, can you explain what is the concordance for people who are listening? Oh, absolutely. So we have an illustrated dictionary and concordance. So the dictionary part is what we are, that we are cutting into. But the concordance is, if it's repeated, it must be important. And you probably want to keep track of all the places where the word presence or the word arc is used in the Bible. So that's what this sort of a, this sort of a resource is useful for. So you want to comment on yeah, that? Yeah, go ahead. So the, uh, what it says here is, like the tabernacle and its contents, the ark, it was movable and during the wanderings of the Israelites was carried by the Levite sons of Kohath. While marching or camping, the Israelites kept the tabernacle at their center, though according to another tradition, it was carried in the vanguard. And so when I read that, oh, it's, it's carried in the vanguard, my thought, my immediate reaction was, makes sense. We are following God. God is leading us. 
But what it says here is the presence of the ark at the front of the people was a sign that the Lord went before them in battle. I was like, oh, that's different from what my 21st century perspective was thinking, right? Like, I'm following the Lord. And they're like, yeah, no, actually, he's, we're going to go want people, and he's with us, um, which seems almost more like the reading from Indiana Jones in some ways. Like, there's a power to do things here that we want to grab, grab hold of. And I think it's important that we are, we are reading about this as the parish here has decided that the prayer of St. Michael will be said at every Mass. And that, I think, is pretty close to an understanding of, like, God with us in battle. Now, it is a different sort of a battle, not against um, humans, but it's a battle right. against powers and principalities, right? But that same approach to the dwelling, to the sacred object, to the place of the presence, with the hope of winning in battle, I think we have to ask ourselves questions around that. So that's the first. And then there's a second excerpt that I wanted to get to, which was seven, one through nine. Um, it won't have as long a description of the takedown, uh, uh, but it does have that same feel of what's going on here is important. Pay attention to each part of the sacred objects. Um, so in one through nine, chapter seven, did you want to read this one? No, 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 you're good. All right, here we go. Um, now when Moses had completed the erection of the dwelling and had anointed and consecrated with all its equipment, as well as the altar and all its equipment, an offering was made by the princes of Israel who were heads of ancestral houses, the same princes of the tribes who supervised the census. The offering they brought before the Lord consisted of six baggage wagons and 12 oxen, that is a wagon for every two princes and an ox for every prince. These they presented as their offering before the dwelling. The Lord then said to Moses, Accept their offering that these things may be put to use in the service of the meeting tent. Assign them to the Levites, to each group in proportion to its duties. But what we notice is it's not all the Levites. There's a special group of Levites, and they are the Kohathites, the same ones we read about before, and they are set apart. Belloc is no Kohathite. You and I both said that. He's masquerading as a priest, but he's not even masquerading as the select group of priests who would have the right to do the thing he's about to do. So Moses accepted the wagons and oxen and assigned them to the Levites. He gave two wagons and four oxen to the Gershonites in proportion to their duties, and four wagons and eight oxen to the Merarites in proportion to their duties, under the supervision of Ithamar, son of Aaron the priest. He gave none, none, not a single wagon to the Kohathites because they had to carry on their shoulders the sacred objects which were in their charge. So let's think about the movie again. Who's carrying the litter? Certainly not Bella. Certainly not the two men to his left. Like, it is grunt. You know, like, it is boots on the ground carrying it. And there's already a profanation in that. that it, it, there's no care being given. There's not the sort of care that we saw in Chapter 4. Definitely not the admonition that we're seeing in uh, Chapter 7. So that having been said, I'd like to just switch to the presence of the Lord. The thing that like makes them laugh in the movie, is this it? Is this all, is this all we brought? We brought this all the way here for this? So here is the definition by Monsignor's uh, Pietro Parente, Antonio Piolanti, and Salvatore Garofalo uh, from mid-century. Let me see if when this was actually published. It's been on our shelves since 1958. It was published in 1951. Here we go. It may be considered with reference to place or time. That's how we usually think about the presence of God. In regard to place, God is present contemporaneously everywhere because of his infinity and immensity. And yet in the movie, it's kind of like God is contained. 
like a genie maybe in Aladdin. Uh, you know, like, you know, really small space, but in infinite cosmic powers, right? Um, but as St. Thomas remarks, God is everywhere, not in the way a body extends itself into the space, i.e. having one part here and one part there, but by reason of his simplicity, he is in the entire universe and entirely in each part of it. The base or reason of, his, um, of, this, um, of this omnipresence is his action. God is present in every creature inasmuch as he acts, conserving its being, moving it in its operation. And since the action and the essence of God are identical, where he acts, there he is, holy and essentially. So back to the point you made earlier, that they led, they were led by, the vanguard would have the ark before it. It was because they were not only calling on God to be present, but they were calling on God to act, right? And so those two things, the is and are doing, uh, have, are happening at the same time. We move from there to, with reference to time, God is actually present to all its moments, past, present, and future, because he is eternal, see eternity, and as such, he transcends and dominates all time. So that's a different way of understanding how we read scripture, or how you are approaching the Hebrew Bible. That what we're reading about is not a historical God back in ye olden days, caught up in a book that we don't access. It's the same God, the exact same God, unchangeable from then through now. And that understanding of time, I think, comes through as well. In the movie, it's the, we might be able to harness the power of old in the present time. Well, I think you have to look, if you're going to talk about the movie, I think it's interesting when they open the, the, the ark and they reach in and they see that it's just, to, just quote unquote, sand. There's three characters standing there and there's three different reactions. The, the kind of the, the head military officer of the operation is just disgusted, disdainful, disappointed. Like, this is it? I, ugh, right? The, the kind of the, the SS Gestapo guy, the secret police guy, he laughs, right? He laughs at it. Like, I knew all along this was a childish thing. I had no hopes for this, right? And then Belloc, who's pretending to be the high priest and saying the incantations and opening everything, um, he is befuddled. He is confused. He looks at it and he's like, Why do I, I swore this was going to work. Why didn't it work? Um, and I think each one of those is kind of a, a snapshot of kind of like people's reactions, right? Either, either disdain for God in terms of like, you're not giving me what I want, you know, even greater disdain in terms of like, you're nothing. I laugh at you or befuddlement. Like, I don't know how to engage with this. I don't know what I should be doing. And I think you see, you see the, the, the three of those there, but I do think that that scene is good because we, it's hard for us. We want God to act in our world, in our lives, but we, we've, and in, in, in wishing for that and hoping for that, we forget that he is so much more than that, right? That we see him as just agent in our lives instead of like, yeah, actually this, you're, you're, his whole thing he put together, including you. Um, so I think that's, that's an interesting perspective there. I do want to jump back real quick mm -hmm. to the first passage that you read. Um, your, your translation says violet. Uh, mine says blue. All right, which I think is interesting. Um, and when I kept reading blue, 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 the thought that came to my mind, and I have no answer here, is isn't blue Mary's color? 
right? And it, and it, and the and the and the covenant is constantly you know, the ark is constantly wrapped in blue and wrapped in blue. And I'm like, is that you know, is there something there? Is that is that you know a foreshadowing of like yes, Mary will be encapsulated or you know uh, wrapping the uh, uh, the word. Um, I don't know. That just really struck out at me. The repeated blue, blue, blue. I was like, what's the heck with the with the blue? But it's interesting because you said violet. So. Mine, I was thinking purple all along. I was thinking the color of kings, the, the, right. the king of kings, and therefore that would be for me. Again, I'm thinking, yeah, the color matters. The color does matter, yeah. but possibly for a different reason because I got a different color in my Catholic study Bible. I don't know what he's bringing, but I brought the Catholic study oh, Bible. Mine is from the Saint Augustine Institute. Thank you. <laughs> Okay. Just for the record, mine does say violet as well. But Mark, I it's interesting. In some of my pre-reading, I was reminded of, of the uh, one of the frequent biblical types in the Old Testament is the Ark of the Covenant foreshadowing Mary. And so it's interesting. I, I guess I didn't put that together. But in some of the commentaries I read about these passages in preparation for our conversation, it was uh, harking back to or harkening back to the um, that uh, foreshadowing. But none of them connected the blue to Mary, which I thought that's interesting. I'm not. I'm not sure. Uh, I didn't, I didn't read that anywhere, but nonetheless, that's certainly some of the foreshadowing that you read in this story is the word uh, on the tablets foreshadowing the word that's going to be incarnate. And in the same way that the, you know, the old covenant is replaced with the new far greater, so too is the, the new covenant, Ark of the Covenant, far greater than the, the old. And it's interesting because when we talk about God and presence and some of what Serge read in the discussion, especially about time, I think that that we, because of our such a limited human perspective, when you talk about foreshadowing, um, we tend to think of, oh, foreshadowing, things to come, instead of saying, instead of thinking, no, no, things that already are, but will be revealed, mm. right? Because like the word, when you mentioned the tablets, and this is a you know, foreshadowing of like, well, that actually that word is eternal right so it's not something to come it's something to be revealed but again this is my ways not your ways right it's hard for us to go oh wait a second this is okay yeah it's different from what i'm, I'm immediately thinking to what our immediate experience draws us to is oh this is going to happen and it's like no it's going to be revealed right that's maybe that's a better phrasing so that's that's a good correction is that it's going to be more fully revealed by god yeah and it's here that we'll pause the reflection on these two passages from the book of Numbers with this idea of God continuing to reveal his plan to us, reveal his transcendence, his imminence, and his great care for us through this Ark of the Covenant, ultimately through his son, the word made flesh in Jesus.